Hello, this is Roger Kimball, the editor of The New Criterion, and I'm speaking to you from the world headquarters in New York City. It's my pleasure to introduce to you our February issue, which, even as I speak, is winging its way to subscribers. Subscribers, I hope you are one. If not, please go to our website and you can see what it's all about. www.newcriterion.com Well, the February issue has many interesting items. We have a piece by the architectural critic and art historian Michael J. Lewis on the world's most overrated architect. That would be Frank Gehry. Then we have a piece by the English writer Paul Dean about the correspondence of the great literary critic Lionel Twilling. A piece by Dominic Green about Edward Byrne Jones, the pre-Raphaelite artist, and a piece that I'm particularly interested in by John Byron Cuner, who's associated with the Paideia Institute. He has a terrific piece, our lead essay, about Father Raphael Landivar. Now, I'm going to guess that most of you, most of you had never heard of this Jesuit priest and poet and great Latinist. I certainly never have, but he is the author of an epic poem called Rusticatio Mexicana, a long Latin poem that is very famous in Latin America. It's been translated four times into Spanish, and uh, there's also an English translation. But you will find Mr. Kuhner's essay absolutely riveting, I think, and I hope you have a chance to read it. Now, I'd also like to introduce our notes and comments for the February 2019 issue. There are two, two notes. The first one is called Opportunity Knocks. As we recall, it was Benjamin Disraeli who observed that next to knowing when to seize an opportunity, the most important thing in life is to know when to forgo an advantage. We suppose that a teaching position in academia is a sort of advantage. Less and less at most institutions is it an opportunity. This melancholy truth is something that Peter Boghossian will doubtless appreciate. Boghossian is, or perhaps by the time you hear this, was an assistant professor at Portland State University. Yes, that Portland, the one whose name you cannot hear without sniggering as visions of sugar plums and social justice snowflakes, not to mention masked Antifa thugs, dance in your head. Portland State University is the perfect academic institution for that act politically correct city. It is aggressively undistinguished academically, but firing on 12 cylinders in the social justice identity politics sweepstakes. In this, it may almost go without saying, PSU is par for the course in the fetid swamps of Academia, Inc., so much of what passes for research in universities these days is indistinguishable from tendentious, politically inspired nonsense. Long-time readers of the new criterion know well whereof we speak. We have regularly offered specimens of this genre for the delectation and disapprobation of our readers. We will forbear to offer more on this occasion. Nevertheless, it is worth keeping an axiom enunciated by the philosopher Gottfried Leibniz in mind as one ponders such repellent phenomena. 
we mean a specific application of the Leibnizian principle of the identity of indiscernibles. If something is indistinguishable from nonsense, it is nonsense. As Leibniz's near-contemporary Baruch Spinoza was fond of concluding, QED, quad erat demonstrandum. We say QED, but although the thing that was to have been demonstrated has in fact been demonstrated, indeed with damnable iteration, as Falstaff put it in another context, the academic establishment bent on pursuing the advantages of reputation, promotion, and tenure, refuses to acknowledge the proof staring it in the face. This is something that Professor Boghosian, together with two friends not employed by PSU, sought to address. In brief, they composed 20 intentionally nonsensical essays that pulsated with fashionable jargon and politically correct sentiments and submitted them under various pseudonyms to a variety of social science journals. Some were rejected, but four were accepted and published. Three were accepted, but have not yet been published. Others are, or were, under review. The title of one of the winners, published in an organ called Gender, Place, and Culture, was, quote, Human Reactions to Rape Culture and Queer Performativity at Urban Dog Parks in Portland, Oregon. The very title sums up the fatuousness that Professor Boghosian and his friends sought to expose. The icing on the cake is the author's summary of the paper's thesis. Quote, That dog parks are rape-condoning spaces and a place of rampant canine rape culture and systematic oppression against the, quote, oppressed dog, through which human attitudes to both problems can be measured. This provides insight into training men out of the sexual violence and bigotry to which they are prone. End quote. We'll wager that you tittered at the oppressed dog. We certainly did. But the peer reviewers were deeply impressed. One began her encomium with the observation that, quote, This is a wonderful paper, incredibly innovative, rich in analysis, and extremely well-written and organized, given the incredibly diverse literature sets and theoretical questions brought into the conversation. The editor of the journal wrote to the pseudonymous author to praise the essay and offered to publish it as a featured article in a future issue because, quote, it draws attention to so many themes from the past scholarship informing feminist geographies, end quote. No doubt. Readers interested in delving further into this midden of insanity can find all of the essays along with comments from editors of the journal they were intended for online at Aereo magazine under the title Academic Grievance Studies and the Corruption of Scholarship. Aereo is A-R-E-O. This delicious enterprise will remind readers of the Sokol hoax of 1996, named for the physicist Alan Sokol, who startled the sancta sanctorum of trendy academic self-satisfaction when he composed an essay called transgressing the boundaries toward a transformative hermeneutics of quantum gravity, a crackling pile of gibberish, and sent it to the once trendy journal Social Text, which promptly published it. Why did Social Text publish it? 
Because here they had a bona fide scientist arguing in owlish terms with all the impenetrable jargon that they so loved for two of their favorite theses. One, that physical reality, no less than social reality, is at bottom a social and linguistic construct. And two, that scientific knowledge, so far from being objective, reflects and encodes the dominant ideologies and power relations of the culture that produced it. Hot dog! Professor Boghossian and his friends adopted essentially the same strategy, updated the aroma of the nonsense they confected with little squirts of a la mode sexual perversity, and presto, lots of egg on the countenance of the wrinkled virtue-signaling academic establishment. Alan Sokol endured the obloquy of that establishment, but, protected by tenure and an admirable carapace of common sense, not only survived the onslaught of the embarrassed natives, but emerged as a sort of hero for partisans of sanity. It is unclear whether Professor Boghossian will enjoy a similar fate. Naturally, he has been subjected to an unofficial smear campaign on campus. Nasty messages have been pasted onto his office door. He has been threatened screamed at, and spat upon by angry opponents, and his likeness has been defaced with swastikas and other emblems of dubious endearment. He now requires a bodyguard when he attends public events. Even more worrisome is the interest the panjandrums of the administration at PSU have taken in his case. Within days of his hoax being revealed last fall, he received an official notice that he was suspected of fabricating data, as one of his collaborators noted, Professor Boghossian was later found guilty of failing to obtain institutional approval for conducting research on human subjects. But, you object, there were no real human subjects. No data was fabricated because no real data was offered. It was a send-up, a satire. You may say so. But social justice warriors are not distinguished for their sense of humor or their appreciation of satire, especially when it is directed at members of their tribe. Indeed, one of the most pernicious effects of the whole totalitarian project of political correctness is to have made satire almost impossible. Satire, after all, depends upon a generally accepted horizon of normality to succeed. But it is not at all clear that in the exotic purlieus of the academy today, we can count on such a shared horizon of values. Is there any absurdity which one can confidently put forward as satire without worrying that one will have already been outstripped by the fanatic disciples of intersectionality and other allotropes of politically correct atomists? We've made the experiment and have failed dismally. No matter what gibberish we imagined, a real-life social justice warrior has always beaten us to the punch and has offered in earnest something similar but even more egregious. As we write, it is unclear what the inquisitors at PSU will do to their errant charge. Professor Boghossian may face various official sanctions, but as yet there is no final word about his future at PSU. He and his collaborators are surely correct that, as they write in their introduction to the online archive at Aereo, quote, something has gone wrong in the university, especially in certain fields within the humanities. Scholarship 
based less upon finding truth and more upon attending to social grievances has become firmly established, if not fully dominant, within these fields, and their scholars increasingly bully students, administrators, and other departments into adhering to their worldview. In our view, Professor Boghossian and his friends performed a public service by engaging in these acts of intellectual fumigation. It will be instructive to see whether they have seized an opportunity or wagered on a deceptive advantage. We hope that the great foundation for individual rights in education, which has been a stalwart ally for those besieged by illiberal liberals on campus, has this case on its radar. Now a farewell and two welcomes. We were saddened to get the news in December, too late to include a notice in our January issue, that the Weekly Standard was closing. We will not speculate on the reasons for its shuttering. Rather, we note that for more than 20 years, the Standard offered a welcome forum for a wide range of conservative opinion. Bravo for that. Many new Criterion writers also contributed, at least occasionally, to its pages. If we must say vale to the Weekly Standard, however, it is a pleasure to say ave to the U.S. debut of the Catholic Herald, the storied English publication that has been a mainstay of Catholic news and opinion, as well as lowercase c Catholic writing on politics, culture, and the arts, for more than 100 years. For the first 126 years of its existence, from 1888 until 2014, the Herald was a newspaper. It attracted the best of the Catholic literary fraternity, including J.R.R. Tolkien, Evelyn Waugh, G.K. Chesterton, and Graham Greene, all of whom contributed to its pages. Reborn in 2014 as a weekly magazine, it has continued to be an important voice heeded as much in the United States, where it enjoyed a large readership, as in its native United Kingdom. With the debut of a U.S. edition, the Herald is sure to find many new readers and intervene in an effective and intelligent way in the many controversies that have beleaguered the Catholic establishment in the United States, as well as other matters. In an editorial statement announcing its American initiative, the editors note that the Herald, quote, will challenge the dangerous polarization of Catholicism into liberal and conservative factions. Instead, it will explore the riches of Orthodox Catholicism, drawing inspiration from the mischievous words of Evelyn Waugh, who, reporting for the Herald from a Eucharistic Congress in Budapest, reassured Catholics that, quote, we are normal. It is the irreligious who are freaks. To subscribe, follow the link catholicherald.co.uk slash subscribe. Fans of that other English weekly, The Spectator, also have reason to celebrate. Several months ago, there was another British literary invasion. The Spectator, which opened its doors in 1828, even earlier than the Catholic Herald, has also started a U.S. edition. For the moment, it is a web-only venture, but within the next few months, it will start to publish a monthly print edition as well. We are pleased to welcome its distinctive brand of crisp, independent commentary to the mix of critical opinion on these shores. Most of the New Criterion's editors, and many of its writers, have been contributors to The Spectator USA, than which a more robust endorsement is difficult to imagine. You will find it online at spectator.us. 
And that's it for the February issue of the New Criterion. This is Roger Kimball signing off.